Hello, 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 and welcome to the brand new Nasty Pasty podcast. I'm your host, my name's Andrew Roberts, and this is the first episode of what will hopefully be a fruitful adventure into lots of different horror films. Now firstly, I thought I'd start with a bit of background about what will be the delicious filling of the Nasty Pasty podcast, so to speak. Now, those of us in the UK, uh, we're pretty familiar with the Video Nasty scandal of the 1980s. This happened way before I was born, but with Jake West's recent documentaries, uh, Video Nasty's The Definitive Guide Parts 1 and 2, and you know plenty of associated materials on the era, and obviously the offending films actually being re-released in crisp new Blu-ray editions, it's not so difficult nowadays to get up to scratch with what actually happened. But basically, VHS hit it off in Britain in the early 80s. And because of the way that the British system worked, um, tons of movies were released without any formal censorship or any certification. Films at the cinema still required it, but VHS was a publishing medium, apparently, and so it was able to bypass this sort of formal uh, system of certification. Now... Obviously, this let a lot of videos into the hands of, you know, unsuspecting families who didn't really know exactly what they were getting because, well, you didn't really have ratings back then, so you could really have been renting out anything. But various tabloids started sowing seeds of dissent, so to speak, and painting nightmare pictures that the country's children uh, would get holds of these films, watch extremely violent material, and basically be possessed by murderous demons going on to kill and commit other various crimes. And they used to link videos to actual crimes that had already been committed. So, for example, Zombie Flesh Eaters, very, very surprisingly, was linked to a chap who tied up his friend with shoelaces and strangled him. And it's very bizarre, the fact that they linked something like Zombie Flesh Eaters to that, when it's it's so tangential and, you know, very flimsy to, to, um, to link it to it. But it was done, and it was accepted. And it wasn't helped by psycho-biddy Mary Whitehouse, who crowbarred in her pennies worth. She claimed that certain films just should just be banned immediately based on her word alone. And as is often the case, the Tories, who were in power at the time, they saw an opportunity to be the moral warriors, really, who'd be the ones to free the British public from the filth that was attacking us in our own homes. And within a few years... Loads of films, dealers and their distributors were prosecuted for obscenity. And from that day on, the BBFC now had a legal obligation to certificate every film that was released on video and to censor it if necessary. Now we know historically there were 72 films on the official Video Nasties list and 82 on a supplementary Section 3 list. And these are the lists that the police would use when they were raiding dealers in order to seize uh, specific film titles. Of special note, however, is that the police often seized more than the titles on the nasties list. And famously, they netted copies of Apocalypse Now, because they got it confused with Cannibal Apocalypse. They confiscated um, a copy of The Big Red One, which was actually just a war film. Um, but they they thought it was pornographic because, you know, the big red one, they thought that must be something quite rude. And they also confiscated the best little whorehouse in Texas, which was 
a musical, actually, uh, starring Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. Simply just because it had Whorehouse on the title, they assumed it must have been porn. There were also others that were accidentally seized, and that's actually kind of what Nasty Pasty is about. I'm going to be going through the many non-nasty films that were either accidentally seized at the time, they're related to nasty films in some way, or they suffered cuts or bans as a result of the scare. They're kind of the unsung heroes of the nasties era, if you will. Like a pasty, these films have a very tempting filling, but the pastry was inconspicuous enough to avoid attention. Well, well, from the DPP, or or they were simply weren't released at the time, and though they, you know, thus they escaped potential attention. So here we have uh, the nasty pasty podcast, a bit tenuous, but it sounds good on the tongue. I'll be covering two films per episode that are both from the same genre, and they have another theme in common. So, for example, we've got two slasher films lined later up in the series, which have the common theme of being based on the crimes of Ed Gain. And we've also got action films that are either post-apocalyptic and concerned bikers, or something similar to that. Occasionally, I'll also be producing some smaller mini-sodes that cover one single film that is perhaps one of the earliest examples of its kind, with only a few tropes in common with the more popular later iteration of the genre. And these films in these mini-sodes are also going to be black and white ones. There's going to be no sort of relatively recent ones that are in colour. And I'm a fan of the I'm a fan, big fan of the video nasty era, so I'm pretty knowledgeable on these films that are involved. But if you're not, you may want to tune into several other podcasts who cover the actual nasties themselves, because this podcast won't be covering any of those DPP titles, unfortunately. There's uh, the Video Nasties podcast by Christopher Brown, which has you know since completed, but the episodes are still available for listening, and they cover the entire 72 films that were on this list. There's also The Strange and Deadly Show by Christopher Clayton and Tom Elliott. They're currently on a hiatus to work on uh, Lost in the Omniverse, which is a brand new comic book movie podcast. But The Strange and Deadly Show does cover the 82 Section 3 nasties. I'm not endorsed by any of these guys, and they're not sponsoring me, but they've done a great deal of work on those particular films. So if you do like to brush up on the main suspects of the air, you should probably check those out first. So this first episode, however, is focusing on the proto-slasher. Now, we're all familiar with the slasher film as a whole, but these two films I'm covering today were sort of precursors to this genre, filmed way before Halloween you know, had established the template, and before Friday the 13th had popularised it. Now, the Nasties list had a couple of prototype or should we say, first-instance-type films on it, um, including uh, the splatter movie Blood Feast, which was you know, the first kind of film to show gore on screen, as it were. It, you know, very explicit, very splattery, very bloody, even though a little bit fake by today's standards, but it really was a pioneer in that era. It was the first gore film, so to speak. And also the first Nazi exploitation film, which was Love Camp 7 in 1969. Again, Nazi-related films have been around before, but not really that kind of combination of sex with kind of nasty Nazis. And these films have many of the hallmarks of the future genre, and some have even the first instance of the tropes. Uh, that, that is, the, the slasher films I'm covering in this episode, that is. Now, those films are Bob Clark's holiday horror, Black Christmas, and David Paulson's upstate slasher, Savage Weekend. 
Now, the way I thought I'd do it, I'll go through a very quick synopsis of the film. So, I have to warn you, there are going to be spoilers. So, if you haven't seen the films and you are still interested in seeing them without any spoilers, I'd go and watch them first before listening to this. So, you have been warned. And then I'll explore a little bit about the background, uh, some of the cast, uh, any significance that the film has before moving on to the sort of censorship or controversy that the film has suffered, you know, mostly in the UK, because that will what. That's really what this uh, case is about. So, uh, we'll start with Black Christmas. A strange man scales a sorority house wall and gains access through the attic while the girls downstairs are holding a Christmas party. The phone rings and student Jess answers it, allowing the other girls, Barb, Phyllis and Claire, to listen in. It's one of several recent obscene phone calls and it culminates in the man threatening to kill the girls and hanging up. Upset about the way Barb handles the call, Claire goes upstairs to pack and is suddenly suffocated by the mysterious man with a plastic bag and dragged into the attic. The next day, Claire's father arrives to pick her up, but Mrs Mack, the sorority house mother, explains that she had already left. Jess tells her boyfriend Peter that she's pregnant and wants to have an abortion, which upsets him, while Barb, Phyllis and Claire's father report Claire missing, hearing that another little girl called Janice is missing too. While the girls join a search party that finds Janice's dead body later that evening, Mrs Mack is lured into the attic by the killer and murdered with a hook. Jess answers another obscene phone call on her return and reports it to the police, with Lieutenant Fuller deciding to monitor the line to trace the calls. Christmas carolers soon arrive, and while they sing to Jess, the killer descends into Barb's room and stabs her to death with a unicorn ornament, her screams masked by the songs. Jess soon receives another phone call, but she manages to keep him on the line long enough for Lieutenant Fuller to deduce that the call is coming from within the house itself. Worried about her friends, she discovers the bodies of Phyllis, who had gone in to check on Barb, and Barb herself, and is chased by the killer to the basement. Peter soon appears, claiming he's heard her screams, but Jess bludgeons him to death with a poker, assuming that he's the killer out of panic. The police come to the same conclusion once they arrive, and sedate Jess to make her rest in bed. The officers leave the house to await reinforcements, when the real killer is revealed to be gibbering still inside the house, and the phone rings out once more. What do you want? 
doing this? Christmas began life as a script based on the urban legend of the babysitter, uh, in which a babysitter receives several harassing phone calls from a stranger, only to report it to the police and find out that the harasser is actually phoning from within inside the house. The ending of this tale always ends slightly differently depending on the region where it's told. Usually within America itself, different states will have kind of different endings, you know, some more gruesome than others, some relatively, you know, mild. Uh, The same premise, though, would be used in the 1979 slasher film When a Stranger Calls, which will be covered later on a later episode. It also, in a way, kind of inspires the beginning of Wes Craven's Scream, where there's a lot of build-up about this person on the phone, and then it, re- you know, it's revealed that the killer is actually very close by. It's been used in a multitude of films, a bit too, you know, a bit too many to list here right now. But um, the initial script was under the title "Stop Me," and it had some significant differences with the end product. Notably, that the murder sequences were actually going to be portrayed as quite graphic, but Clark insisted that the kill should probably be more subtle in order to enhance their effectiveness, and he also had some further changes done to the script. He changed the title to Black Christmas because he felt the irony of something bad happening in the holidays on the title would attract people to the film, and he also wrote a bit more humour into the script because the original was a little bit more cold, shall we say. So it broke up some of the melancholy, and he also made the killer completely ambiguous, as well as unseen. There was also an ending in which Jess is killed before the credits roll, but he wanted to quash that because he he saw it as a little bit too dire. And in this first version, the killer would also be revealed to be Claire's boyfriend, Chris, which Clark disagreed with completely. He wanted both the fate of Jess and the identity of the killer to be completely open to debate. So it was changed. Arguably, one could say that it's probably this decision which has made the film so memorable and enduring, even after all these years. So filming took place primarily in Toronto, in Ontario, Canada, and wrapped in just 40 days. Despite the fact it was freezing 10 degrees, which made the filming of the search party scenes difficult, there wasn't actually much snow in Toronto either at the time. So they had to use a foam that they managed to obtain from the local fire department just to give the impression of snow outside. Now, the trippyish point-of-view shots that begin the film are often cited as the first instance of the killer's perspective in a slasher film. Not strictly true. 1960's Peeping Tom was chronologically the first film to have this technique, but the way that the camera's used in Black Christmas is the first instance of the so-called slasher film technique, where it's kind of handheld, it's got that kind of movement, natural movement, and the audience follows the killer's movement, and everything the killer looks at is fully undivided on our attention. And it's usually accompanied by that heavy breathing sound or mumbling. 
So the killer in this film, dubbed Billy unofficially by fans due to the ramblings that he emits, was played by cinematographer Albert J. Dunk. And his hands are the ones that are shown committing the murders. Now, he achieved this kind of look in the film by strapping the camera to his shoulder with a harness and just performing all the actions as normal. He even climbed into the house and the attic in the beginning. It's unconfirmed if Dunk played the part of the eye that's behind the door once Jess has discovered the bodies of her friends. The director, Clark, doesn't seem to remember and, well, no one else really seems to either. When Claire gets suffocated in the beginning, the actress Lynn Griffin said that the part of the bag in her mouth had a little breathing hole inside, as well as nostril holes that she created with a pencil, allowing her to breathe while she was being filmed in the chair. And her face was also sprayed with catnip at one point, in order to lure the cat Claude onto her lap for one of the shots, because the cat was basically just ignoring her. Billy's iconic threatening voice was performed by Bob Clark, an unknown actress, and Nick Mancuso, who stood on his head to compress his vocal cords to create a frightening rasp. In order to spread suspicion, Nick Mancuso was also dubbing over some of Peter's lines in order to give the impression that Peter could actually be the killer. And in the original script, the language used by Billy on the phone was relatively mild, and the dialogue, which was also read by Bob Clark on set, was what the actresses were actually reacting to in the beginning phone call. It was only later that the stronger foul language was edited in to create a much more shocking effect. Now, Olivia Hussey, who stars as Jess, took on the role due to consulting her psychic. Um, Margot Kidder, who was also in the film as Barb, Uh, mentions that she was giggled at quite a bit for for this origin. And she was told that the film would be successful and good for her career, so she accepted. It was her first horror picture, and it was her first time in Canada too. And she'd only just recently given birth, actually. Ironic, considering her character in Black Christmas is the one seeking an abortion. Peter's role was originally offered to Malcolm McDowell, of uh, Clockwork Orange fame, until it was accepted by Kia Delea, who was delighted because his parents were living in the area of Toronto where they were filming. Delea was only on set for a week and completed his scenes without even meeting Margot Kidder, and he only fleetingly saw John Saxon, who was was replacing Edmund O'Brien as Lieutenant Fuller, and this was uh, on composer Carl Zittra's recommendation. Saxon had starred in some of the video nasties as well, actually, um, namely Antonio Margariti's Cannibal Apocalypse and also Dario Argento's Tenebrae. Betty Davis was offered the role of Mrs. Mack, but she did turn it down. She'd later go on to star with Olivia Hussey in another film, which I actually can't remember the name of, but reportedly I don't think they actually got on with each other either, so they probably wouldn't have got on on this one either. <laughs> None of the actors playing the students were the right age. Hussey and Griffin, who played Claire and Jess, were in their early 20s, while Delea was actually 38 at the time of filming. But most of the cast tend to agree that the set was joyful and lively, despite the sinister tone of the film. Now, the soundtrack created by Carl Zittra, it used some very unique methods to get the drone on that piano, So he tied basically knives and forks to uh, the piano strings so that when he would rap on the keys, the resonance would warp the sound and make it sound a lot more maddening. 
and in addition he would physically put pressure on the reels of the audio recorder in order to further distort the sounds and increase the bizarreness of the notes. While the slasher genre has origins in 1932's Thirteen Women and 1960's Psycho, up to the later Bay of Blood and Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, Black Christmas sets up the more recognisable template that Halloween would embody. While not strictly the first slasher film, it does have the honour of being the first seasonal slasher film, predating Halloween by more than four years. A similar title, Silent Night Bloody Night, was released in 1972, but is neither a slasher nor indeed a seasonal film, as the plot only makes very fleeting references to the holiday. A future film entitled Silent Night Deadly Night would release in 1984, unrelated to either film. The film watchy was retitled Silent Night Evil Night upon release in the US because the distributors were afraid that the new title would liken it to a black exploitation film. Instead, the film didn't perform well at all with that new title and it was hastily re-released with the original Black Christmas title and actually managed to gross almost seven times its budget, a total of over $4 million. Negative reviews, however, were dampening the critical appeal, and ultimately it was only a moderate success. And despite this, it now has quite a large cult following and has received a critical reappraisal as an important film. And it was also shown on uh, network TV as well under the title Stranger in the House, but it was soon pulled off because of the dark content. Today, it's well regarded as a classic, Margot Kidder admitted that she was quite surprised of its cult following, as she surmised that it would fade into some obscurity. And Olivia Hussey was surprised when Steve Martin met her and exclaimed that she was in one of his favourite films, which turned out to be this one. And at that time in 1987, uh, he said he'd claimed, well, he claimed he'd seen it around 27 times, so I can imagine by today's standards he's probably watched it even more than that. And even Elvis Elvis Presley himself watched it every Christmas, and his family have continued that tradition way after his death. I'd seen Black Christmas um, only around five years ago for the first time, and I've grown quite fond of it. It's not super explicit, and and I'd expect anyone seeking this out for a bloodbath is going to be a little disappointed. The thrills in Black Christmas are much more subtle, and the, the blood flow's kept to a minimum, similar really to how... Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre are in terms of violent content. But a big example, I think, of how the film really works is um, the death of Barb. She's stabbed in bed with this unicorn ornament, and it's not that gory, but the impact is pretty strong due to the way it's edited together with the sound of a haunting Christmas carol in the background. And also the fleeting glimpses of the killer and the ambiguity of his identity have really made the film last. It could be absolutely anybody, and the film's refusal to give him a name or identity is quite harrowing. You could imagine it happening on your street, that some random loony would just break into someone's house and kill a bunch of people. Now, the phone calls are probably the element which catch people off guard. The language is pretty vulgar and foul. I was watching this film only two years ago at Christmas with my mother-in-law, and when the phone calls happened, I did go a little bit red from some of the swear words that Billy's using. We had a bit of a laugh about it, though. I mean, it's a little bit par for the course in today's world, but imagine in 1974, this would have been probably pushing the limits a little bit. Sure enough, the original X certificate version in the UK cinemas was cut to these phone call scenes, removing any instance of the word cunt 
and removal of some of the more vulgar sexual references. After this theatrical version in 1974, Black Christmas was left without a further release until 2003, completely uh, bypassing uh, the James Furman era of the BBFC, and therefore it passed with all previous cuts waived. It did, however, receive a preset release in the US and in Canada, so the VHS was possibly trading among avid collectors in the video black market that thrived after 1984. Due to the negativity associated with Silent Night, Deadly Night in the US, and the fact that Christmas Evil was also placed on the Section 3 list, it could be surmised that Warner Brothers, who had the film rights, chose not to release it during that tumultuous period in Britain because of a fear of potential backlash regarding Christmas horror films. I wasn't born until the year of 1991, so unfortunately this era of film has eluded me in time, so I can't even imagine what it must have been like to see something like this at the pictures. But it'd be great if any of you have seen Black Christmas back in the day, and uh, do send some feedback in if that's the case. So, that was Black Christmas by Bob Clark, and we'll move on to our second film now in this episode, the little-known Savage Weekend. A woman in a white dress is seemingly pursued by a man who threatens her with a chainsaw. The scene quickly changes to the woman, named Marie, in her apartment with friend Nicky and sister Shirley. They soon receive a visit from Greg, Marie's ex-husband and disgraced politician, who clearly shows a dislike of the group, especially of Marie's new boyfriend, stockbroker Robert. After Greg leaves, the group head to the country for a break and for Robert's check on his investment, a small cottage and a schooner that has been built by a local man called Otis, who's the man from the opening. Shirley picks up a grotesque mask for Marie's son from a shop, while Nicky has a confrontation at a bar with two homophobes. Engineer Jay joins them at the cottage to help them with the boat, while local man Mac provides the lumber for the task. Mac tells the group of Otis, the local man from the opening, and how he was responsible for the assault of a young woman, and potentially a murder of the woman's lover. Though married, Jay flirts and eventually has sex with Shirley, who actually finds him repugnant afterwards when he's quite rough with her. Marie feels conflicted about her relationship with Robert, imagining that it's actually Greg making love to her instead of him, and she tells Shirley that she feels numb after Greg was disgraced. She then begins to develop feelings for Mac, but they're soon extinguished when she envisions Greg again when she makes a move on him. After Jay is rejected by Shirley... He heads out to the boat, where he's suddenly strangled to death by someone wearing the mask that Shirley bought. After having a formal dinner at the house, Marie and Robert go for a walk, while Nicky and Shirley playfully dance and put on makeup. Jay's hanging body is discovered by Marie and Robert at the boat, while Nicky is killed at the house with a sewing needle. A terrified Shirley discovers this and flees to the basement where the killer ties her up and straps her to a table saw, but is unsuccessful in getting the power started to it. 
Robert and Marie return to the house when the killer attacks Robert and defenestrates him, causing him to fatally land on a rake. He then sits near Marie and removes the mask, revealing it to be Greg, who hints that he's murdered their son and plans on committing a murder-suicide with Marie due to his depression following his political downfall. The following morning, Mac arrives at the house and accidentally kills Shirley when he supplies the power to the basement during his search for Marie, whom he eventually finds in tow with Greg on their way to the lake. Marie eventually escapes from Greg and attempts to join Mac, only for the two men to come come to blows. Just as it looks like Greg will kill Mac, Otis arrives, very similar to the opening scene, and dispatches Greg with a chainsaw, saving both Mac and Marie. What do you want? I don't know. You see that? That's what you're playing with. If I had a woman looked anything like you, I sure wouldn't let her alone. Jealousy's stupid. It's human. Have you got gin? Yeah, I got gin. Splash some in a pretty glass for me. Hey, Rance. I thought they didn't allow no bathing suits in here. Sure does fill one out nice, don't it? Sweet talk won't do it, fella. I'm into rough trade. Savage Weekend is a bit of an unfortunate case in horror films, as it was filmed in 1976, way before Halloween had come onto the scene. It received an extremely small uh, theatrical release as The Killer Behind the Mask, and it was shelved for several years until 1979, when it received a major release by Canon Films. By this point, however, Halloween had been released a year prior, and Savage Weekend's opportunity to be the first de facto slasher film was missed. Despite this early foot on the slasher ladder, Savage Weekend is not quite the de facto slasher that would have propelled the genre in the same way that Carpenter's example would. The movie was filmed on location in Hudson River Valley in upstate New York, at a remote lake, part of the reason why it has uh, an alternative title called The Upstate Murders. The film's original title was The Killer Behind the Mask, which fits in a little more with the film's tone, as more of a murder mystery with some dramatic elements. Director David Paulson would eventually go on to become a major player in US Soap's Dynasty and Dallas, working as a writer, producer and director. And this kind of explains the film's focus on characterization and interactions rather than just some gratuitous gore. One thing that the film does focus on, though, is rather sleazy sexual scenes, with multiple instances of Shirley getting it on with Jay, while Marie toys between her boyfriend Robert and the lumberjack Mac whilst simultaneously thinking of her mustachioed ex-husband Greg. While much more gratuitous than the film's violent scenes, the action is still relatively softcore, and sometimes even borders on the humorous, because there's a slightly odd scene where Marie is erotically milking a cow, and, well, it just made me laugh more than anything else. One of the film's other oddities is the character of Nicky. Now, Nicky is this effeminate gay guy who self-identifies as a queen, 
but he actually defies some stereotypes. He's able to defend himself against these two redneck homophobes in a bar. And in the 70s, this was probably a really rare thing, because I don't remember encountering it in anything else. And it kind of endeared me to the guy quite early on. He gets quite a bit of the humour across, too. There's some jokes that actually did make me just laugh out loud. And some of the sexual aspects of the film include him, but in an odd way. There's a quite a charged scene later where Shirley's doing a strip tease with Nicky watching, and there's a bit of an ambiguous look on his face, almost as if he wants to be involved and have something to happen, but ultimately he can't do anything with her because of his sexuality. It's a bit of a lost cause as well. I was expecting a bit more from Nicky, and ultimately it just kind of goes nowhere, and he's just killed quite offhandedly, which is a bit of a shame. The film owes a bit of a debt to deliverance, I'd say, because it it starts with a very freaky banjo theme. Uh, Well, it has it throughout, really, and it has that kind of theme of country people uh, contrasted with the city dwellers. Unlike Deliverance, however, the countrymen actually seem to be the good guys, and Otis is the prime example here. He ultimately saves Marie from her murderous ex, and he's quite loyal to his uh, deceased brother as well. It's the city dwellers that are actually the one with uh, dubious moral compasses. They have you know, lots of rampant sexual behaviour with each other, and murderous tendencies too, in the case of Greg. I also found, I don't know if anyone else kind of saw this, but I got a bit of an undercurrent of uh, religious subtext and a bit of sinful punishment going on in the background. The film's kind of threat begins when they find a bat crucified on the wall of Robert's house towards the beginning. Uh, Apart from just the obvious punishment method, which, you know, is crucifixion, but bats were known in biblical times as messengers of the devil. There's a religious announcer that frequently pops up in the background, uh, well, on the radio. And Robert's boat looks like the closest thing to an ark that you probably could get. And the fact that Greg is hinted to have killed their own son is very similar to that story about Abraham. And his disgraced political background may hint that he's actually more conservative than we might imagine. And maybe that gives him this kind of reasoning for punishing you know his victims whom he sees as sinful especially when it comes to the sex obviously coming before halloween this film introduces another trope that would probably become a big staple in the genre namely the introduction of a killer using a mask to hide his identity and there's a sequence in the middle of the film uh, that's it there's a kind of there's a kind of hour when nothing really happens in this film and the un- the deaths seem to come quite quickly towards the end but th- there is a sequence in the middle that's very halloween-esque with the killer's point of view wandering around the house and he's picking up various things like some gloves he picks up a, a weapon i think and obviously the the the, the mask as well the pr- very prominent mask now, in these sequences, it's actually the executive producer, John Mason Kirby, who's playing the killer. Uh, another element which is very much like Carpenter's film, but not necessarily great news for the slasher fan, is a lack of on-screen gore. The The murders are pretty inexplicit, and there's only Nicky's death by sewing needle that is slightly interesting, you know, more than interesting than the others. Like I said, the, di- the the deaths also come after a full hour of plot and dialogue, which makes the film just a little taxing to your attention. But thankfully, the, the performances in the film are nowhere near as terrible as is usual in this genre. 
And actually, they put in some pretty good acting, which makes the first hour just a little bit more bearable. Unfortunately, even these good performances can't hide what an extremely roughly hewn gem that the film is. There's multiple appearances by a sound mic in the top of several shots. The shaky camera work in the beginning is actually quite dizzying, and the quality of most film prints are dingy, blurry, and washed out. There's also a lot of build-up and not enough payoff in the film, such as the aforementioned characterization of Nicky, which just seems to go nowhere and is basically thrown away. There's also the bit where Shirley is quite effectively uh, terrorised by the killer on her way to the basement, and then she's tied up to the table saw, only to be kind of ham-fistedly killed in like a second later when Mac turns on the power accidentally. There's just little payoff considering the build-up was actually really good. And the two homophobes earlier, uh, they reappear later, seemingly related to Mac in some way, but then they just never return again and there's just no conclusion. This abundance of loose ends, it's, it's a bit frustrating when there's potential clearly there, but Ultimately, it doesn't really eclipse the success of the film, because it's actually quite refreshing and a creepy little shocker sometimes when it, when it gets going. Now, Caitlin O'Heaney, who played Shirley, she later went on to have a very successful TV career, but she made, the, uh, she made her debut in this film in order to gain some traction in the Screen Actors Guild. And she notes that despite the film having a very, very low budget, the set was very professional and very friendly too. Now, William Sanderson, who plays the redneck Otis, he went um, to his audition in the character, and he, he won the part based on that. And he previously appeared as the racist Jesse Lee Kane in the video nasty Fight for Your Life. Christopher Allport, as well, who plays, who plays Queen Nikki, also appeared in a video nasty, Gary Sherman's uh, dark shocker Dead and Buried where he was an unfortunate soul who gets burned alive in the film's opening, and then a hypodermic needle inserted into his eyeball later, just for good measure. Now, the role of Mac was played by David Gale, who would later gain fame for playing the villainous Dr. Hill in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, especially memorable in a quite a lurid sequence involving his severed head beneath, well, between a girl's legs. He also starred as the villain alongside Michael Berryman and Mark Hamill in the Japanese manga-inspired funfest, The Giver, or as it was called in the UK, and from what I remember on VHS, Mutronics the Movie. Mac's daughter in the film was actually played by Yancey Butler, and she would probably go on to the most success by starring in the Witchblade TV series, three of the Lake Placid movies, and both kick-ass movies. As mentioned before, the first release of this film was extremely limited and the film was shelled for several years. After Halloween was released, the film was picked up and you know, re-released to cash in on the growing slasher trend and it had some modest success. While the film did make a small amount at the box office, the critics' reviews were scathing and they completely trashed the gratuitous sex scenes, the sort of gruesome murders and the obvious low budget. And in the UK, the film was too low-key to even receive a theatrical release. However, to everyone's surprise, it did actually get a VHS release in the early 80s from Hakushin. The film, however, was heavily cut to all the scenes of sex and nudity, making the film feel very choppily edited. 
there wasn't really much violence that they could cut out, so I assume just most of the nudity ended up on the uh, censor's scissors. And this print has unfortunately persisted even today, more so because the film has fallen into public domain as of 2009. So an uncut version has sadly not been passed here in the UK since, but a restored Blu-ray version has surfaced in the United States, very well, fairly recently as well. But due to the public domain status, I'm fairly sure that the film is actually free for download from the Internet Movie Archive as well. Now, looking at the VHS, it would have been easy to imagine this as a video nasty. The girl on the front is quite scantily clad, and she's being restrained by the killer, while the back synopsis describes in relatively puerile detail about how a hat pin is stabbed through a man's brain, and a man is impaled on a farm rake. Now, after having seen the film, these things do, of course, happen, but not really in the tone that the back copy suggests. And this was a pretty common problem back in the day, when the video covers and the associated advertising made claims or suggestions about the film that were not really grounded in the reality of it. And couple this with how triggered the police were when raiding shops... It's easy to think that this film could have been hauled in, especially as Hakushin were already under fire for releasing the video nasties Prisoner of the Cannibal God, Bloodbath, and the Section 3 title, Terror. Did anybody rent this out during that era? Or even better, did anyone see this on the big screen? I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on this one. that is the end of the show for this week so today's episode was on proto slashes next week we have a different animal altogether so next week i'll be taking a look at two of the last entries in the cannibal boom of italian films and they are massacre in dinosaur valley and against nature which is also known as the green inferno or alternatively cannibal holocaust 2 If you can't find Massacre in Dinosaur Valley either, that is also sometimes known as Naked and Savage, or also Cannibal Ferox 2. Clearly there's a a pattern going on here, isn't there? But if you've got any feedback or comments you have for these next two films, those can be sent in either audio form or written emails, etc. And you can find details of this at the very end of the episode. Thank you to Mr. Bob Clark and Mr. David Paulson for their films that I've had the pleasure of discussing today. Thank you to Purple Planet Music for the music track used. Thanks to strangeanddeadly.com for welcoming the show into its ranks. And most importantly, thank you all for listening to the first episode in the Nasty Pasty podcast. Goodbye! You've been listening to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. 
If you wish to send any feedback or any comments on the show, please email them through to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit the Twitter page at nastypastypod or find our group on Facebook.